0: grace and peace to you all today that's always the best place to start our father in heaven praise to you and all that you have made you have extended your kingdom to the world may we live in it the way that you decree do you recognize the beginning of what we call the lord's prayer no matter how you say it this is the meaning of what jesus was teaching if we are to live in god's kingdom we must be subject to his rule Our focus must be on God's will, not on following our own urges or the leading of the world that stands in rebellion against him. Our complete allegiance needs to be given to him at all times, not divided between God's interests and those of others. And Jesus offered his teaching and the prayer form that he taught his followers during a a gathering on a hillside near the Sea of Galilee early in his public ministry. And he is in the middle of that right now telling people what is expected of those who want to live in the kingdom of God. He keeps talking about the need for our inward life to match and drive our outward actions. And in the process of explaining how to live out our duties to our king, Jesus offered this prayer that was supposed to be the mirror we could hold in front of our lives to see if we look like citizens of heaven. These are the things we want to see. We want to see a devotion to God, a desire to see his rule strengthen and grow, and a reliance on him to provide as he has promised. And now Jesus is going to go in depth on each one of these, so we can't miss the goal of life in the kingdom. He's trying to let us know what the purpose of living in God's kingdom would be, why we would want to be there instead of where we are. He's giving us the tools to evaluate where we are and how we move closer to God. Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 19. If you don't have a Bible open, you probably want to grab one and and follow along. We're going to stick mostly to our our story today, which is in Matthew chapter 6. But Matthew chapter 6, starting right at verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, I I hate to be always picking on how things don't translate well to English. But there's wordplay that Jesus is using here, which gets lost, that I think we can restore at least a little bit. In, In Greek, see, he's using two very similar words to set up a rhythm or a cadence to make this a memorable turn of phrase. And we've kind of turned it into a cold command. Don't do this, do that instead. But it's not really about what you're trying to keep Um, This thing that Jesus is saying, it's about the value that you place on things in life. A a better way to say this to translate this passage in English might be something like, Don't treasure your treasures on earth where munchers and crunchers chew and takers break and take. But treasure your treasures from above which munchers and crunchers can't chew and takers can't break and take. What you treasure is where your heart is. And beyond the alliteration of rhyming words, do you see there's a shift in the meaning when you listen to it this way as well? I'm going to do it one more time because you probably got all thrown off by me rhyming stuff. But it says, Don't treasure your treasures on earth where munchers and crunchers chew and takers break and take. But treasure your treasures from above which munchers and crunchers can't chew and takers can't break and take what you treasure is where your heart is so you see the shift in the meaning jesus isn't talking about our need to exchange what we have for better treasures he's not talking about getting better stuff in heaven than we have on earth the treasures here are actually the expression of who we each are and where we put our allegiance Faith in the things of Earth is faith that gets gnawed away until it disappears. It gets corrupted like rust eating steel, like mice devouring stores of grain, like inflation devaluing currency and savings. What you collect on Earth fails. It only had a finite value to start with. And when you die, it's worthless. The richest man in the world the minute after he dies is described as formerly being the richest man in the world. Because in that instant of death, all earthly treasure is gone. And what are treasures from above? It doesn't seem like it's a heavenly bank account or a strong box where God makes a deposit of jewels for every good deed that you do. What if the treasures from above are things like the fruit of the spirit that grows in the lives of the faithful Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are of immediate and constant value to those who develop them and to those around those who develop them. They're, They're treasures to be treasured. They can't be eaten away. They can't be stolen. They're part of you. They are grown as you grow in your allegiance to the king who declared this fruit to be the visible evidence of a life lived in his kingdom. This is the result of a life lived by one who means it when they pray, may your kingdom come and your will be done. Now, let me tell you, ancient people regarded the eyes as windows to the soul. And Jesus uses that belief to explain the concept of inner treasure in in another way. This is uh, verse 22 in Matthew 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? (laughs) I know, it's a little confusing. Let's... Let's talk this through here. Um, there's an old Russian expression which translated to English is something on the order of are you hanging spaghetti from my ears? I I know. It sounds ridiculous. It's an idiom. It's a, a saying that has a meaning that can't be understood from the word alone. There is a cultural understanding that has to go with that or or you don't get it. Like uh, if I say I'm pulling your leg. I, I'm not, but that saying is one that has a meaning very different from the basic English words and when it gets translated the hearer has no realistic chance of understanding what it means without some explanation the the Russian saying about the spaghetti it means the same thing as I'm pulling your leg does it, it, it does well mostly kind of translations always difficult now Jesus who is not pulling our leg or hanging spaghetti on our ears, is referring to a Jewish idiom when he says that the eye is the lamp of the body. This one, fortunately, is a little easier to understand than the spaghetti one because it is essentially referring to the way that sight works. Uh, An eye that is clear, vision that's not blocked or obscured, can be fixed on God letting his light into the body. That means you can look to God and allow his purpose in to fill your soul. Because the eyes are the window to the soul, right? See, see how it all connects? But if your eye is unhealthy, it says in this translation, then your body will be filled with darkness. Other translations say if your eye is evil. Um, the, the word that we're translating from is one that refers to a, a moral evil, or to put it a simpler way, If your vision's focused on something that isn't God, then the light that comes from God isn't going to be getting into your soul, right? Godly and ungodly, they don't mix. They don't. So Jesus is saying that the person who tries to divide his focus to take in both God and not God really can't see where they're going. They're truly morally and spiritually blind, And saying that your whole body is full of light or your whole body is full of darkness is a warning that this is an all-in thing. You can't give your allegiance to God part of the time and to other endeavors, goals, or hopes the rest of the time. You, You can't. Which brings us to the final part of this explanation of what it means to focus on the will of God. And this is to help clarify for those of you who are like, well, what do you mean you can't do two things? What do you mean you can't follow God and something else? Well, this is it right here verse 24 Jesus says no one can serve two masters either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve both God and money all right one last bit of nitpicking at our translation here that last word money not quite right in Greek which was the common written language in Jesus's day in Aramaic which was the common spoken language of Jesus and most of the ancient Near East in the first century. And even in some modern English translations, that word isn't money, it's, it's the original word mammon, which means money, but it also means anything else that can be possessed. It's not just about cash. It's about everything, stuff and not stuff that you can feel like is, is yours. Mostly, it means material things. But it can be more than that, too. Um, House, car, furniture, a person's affections, a right to certain comforts or advantages. These are all things that we can feel are possessions, things that we own or control. And just as much as you may feel that you own them, when you love possessions, then your possessions possess you. And your allegiance is then directed to them. And as Jesus says here, you can't serve two masters. All right, so let's talk about that for a moment. Because sometimes you might feel differently. I I get that. It it was, for instance, it was completely legal for a slave to be owned by more than one person. Roman law even allowed for someone to be uh, considered half slave and half free. How's that? You're your own master half the time and someone else is your master half the time. But service divided between two masters, two goals, two destinations, two kingdoms, that service devoted to neither fully. And what that means is that one will always take precedence. Jesus puts it in the starkest terms. He says, you will love one and hate the other. And this was a common way to refer to the decision being made to put one person or thing ahead of another. It's a a tool of language. It simply says that you have or will care for one more than you will care for the other. He's not saying you're experiencing or acting in hatred towards the other. Uh, God actually used similar language when he talked about how his blessing followed one family line over another in the earliest days of Israel being his chosen people. Uh, Jacob chose to follow the Lord, while his brother Esau chased after the treasures of the world instead. And the tribes and eventual nations, which grew from those two family lines, largely did the same over the generations as their initial ancestor. And in Malachi chapter one, verses two and three, God says, I have loved you. But you ask, how have you loved us? was not esau jacob's brother declares the lord yet i have loved jacob but esau i have hated and i have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to desert jackals now it wasn't that god hated the people of edom which was the nation founded by the tribes of esau it was that he gave special favor to the people of jacob who was also called israel And to participate in that special favor, that special treatment, the Edomites would have needed to repent from their worldly path and return to Israel's godly path. But because his favor was more on Israel than on his brother, God describes their relationship as loving one and hating the other. Now, examples of this kind of uh, duology abound, both in scripture and in outside writings. But let me point to one more. This is Jesus in Luke chapter 14. At uh, verse 26 of Luke 14, Jesus says this. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, what is Jesus telling them? He's not telling them that they need to despise their family. He's not telling them they need to hate their own lives. All right. What he is telling them is that their first allegiance, their top priority, needs to be to him, to God, to doing the things that God has set up in his kingdom. Oops, sorry. Yes, the things God set up in his kingdom for us to do. If you have to choose between doing what God says and doing what a family member says, that choice is made by your allegiance and your priorities. All right. You are going to decide what to do based on who and what you care about most. I have developed a staunch stand in my life for nonviolence based on the teachings of Jesus and the practices of the early church. I very much believe that Jesus meant it when he told us we're supposed to love our enemies and only return blessings and kindness even when evil is done to us. It's not my first instinct, though. I think I've gotten better at my self-control over the years and I try to model my actions on the words of Jesus rather than the example of the world, but this isn't always a comfortable place to stand. Um, I once got in a debate about my position and I had someone tell me that he was all in favor of loving his enemies, but if they threatened his family, that's it. He carries a firearm so he can deal with people like that. Another time an associate told me that he's sure that Jesus' teaching is a great ideal, but sometimes in the real world we have to be violent to promote peace now i disagree with these guys what what i think they're doing is declaring their allegiance to violence because what they're saying is that god's ways aren't good enough their way is better or their way is needed or their way is the only thing they can really trust in over god's ways But i got to tell you, Jesus didn't say love your enemies unless they threaten your family. And he didn't say bless those who persecute you unless you have an AR-15 handy, then blow that mother to hell. Nonviolence doesn't mean letting people walk on you, but it does mean controlling the impulse to punch some people or to advocate for sending harm on them. It may mean finding a creative way to show love while standing up for those who can't stand up for themselves. It definitely isn't something I could or would do except my allegiance is to the kingdom of God first above all things or at least that's what I try to live out. Now remember we pray to the Lord your kingdom come your will be done not your will be done except in this situation or your will be done unless I don't like where that might lead or your will be done unless it's not the same as my will in which case say screw it I'm doing my thing we don't pray those things our focus is supposed to be on God's will we need to be vigilant we need to check our motives and we need to change them if needed so we can keep our focus on allowing or helping his will to be done Let me turn to what uh, Jesus said into three simple questions that you can ask yourself to check and see where your allegiance lies. Is your allegiance in the kingdom or is your allegiance outside? Jesus spoke about the treasures we treasure. What treasures do we treasure? Ask yourself, what is it I'm striving for? That thing that you're striving for, be it a, a physical object or a person or a ideal or a rush or whatever, that thing that you're striving for, that is the treasure in your life. Jesus talked about letting uh, your eye, excuse me, he talked about your eye letting in light or darkness. Well, ask yourself, what am I seeing that is leading me to strive for that treasure in my life? What is it I'm taking in that is making me think that that is the direction I need to go? Jesus said, this is the third question. Jesus said, we can only serve one master, right? Does the striving for that treasure, for that reason, show the world that you're going to trust in God? Or is it showing that your faith lies somewhere other than God? All right. So where is your faith being revealed as being? Um, That's a much more confusing way to say that, isn't it? How about someone who's never met you, doesn't know anything about you, if they just saw what you're doing, what you're striving for, and what's motivating that striving, where would they think your faith was? In his letter to the Romans, Paul of Tarsus wrote, don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. Where you're putting your faith is the master you're choosing to follow. As one of my favorite philosophers of the 1960s and beyond once wrote, well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. God bless Bob Dylan and that's the bottom line really it may be the devil or maybe the Lord it might be stuff or it might be Jesus it might be God or it might be whatever who are you gonna serve who do you serve which kingdom are you choosing to live in that's more than enough to think about for today Let's pray together. Lord, we come before you as people who want to be part of your kingdom. The world tries to pull our allegiance away from you at every turn. Oh, help us, Lord, to be aware of the treasures that we are treasuring so that we can strive for that which comes from above. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on your light so that we don't let the darkness creep in and blind us. Help us to keep our allegiance firmly set on serving you, Lord if we waver or if we suddenly begin to follow another master make us aware of it grant us discernment and endurance give us strength to stand up for your kingdom against all others help us to be good representatives of your ways and of your son in all things we pray this in the name of that son jesus christ amen remember when you go with the god of the universe There's never any worldly thing to fear. And wherever you go, God is there. So go, light the darkness. Grace and peace to you.